We're going to jump in where we left off, I believe, two weeks ago. We left off in Genesis at the end of Genesis chapter 6, where God had said what he's going to do. He's going to uncreate. Okay, everything in the flood count is an undoing of what he did in Genesis 1. So the flood narrative very much draws on the even the vocabulary and the imagery and the concepts from Genesis 1 and 2. So God is, is decreating the world because the crown of creation, humanity, has gone astray and, as the text says, has ruined the earth, has ruined themselves. So God is going to bring ruin on the earth. That, that's the word. Play. The flood is not this random arbitrary account. God is very specific in the Genesis text that it's, it's lex talionis. It's punishment fitting the crime. It's because you have ruined your way upon the earth, I am going to send ruin to you along with the earth. And so this is literally what's happening in Genesis. So everything that God says for him to do then, he, he commands him to build the ark. And we talked about you can't reconstruct the ark from these directions. You have to add a whole lot because this just gives us the basis, the basics rather. But it's an important it's important because this structure is going to be what saves the 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 remnant of humanity. And so there's special attention. The ark and the tabernacle are the only two structures in Genesis uh, I mean, in Torah, rather, that are ever spelled out in terms of measurements and directions, and this is how you're to build, because they're very important. Both are are basically um, portable means by which God interacts with and preserves his covenant people. And so that's, and they both happen to involve an ark, ark of the covenant and the ark of Noah. But they're both the, the places where God is with his people in the midst of a fallen, uh, ruined creation. So chapter 6 ends with Noah did everything just as God had commanded him. And now the flood account proper, I guess, begins. Verse, chapter 7, verse 1. This whole six uh, chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9 we talked about last week, they form one giant chiasm. So what you read in chapter 6, you're going to end in chapter 9 with the same thing. And each section is mirroring, and then there's a middle line, which hopefully we'll get to today. So this whole thing is structured beautifully, literary-wise. But chapter 7 is one giant chiasm in the middle of everything. Chapter 7 and 8 are kind of the middle chunk of this. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. So what does God tell Noah to do? First, you're going to take seven of every kind of clean animal. And you're going to take, yeah, seven of every kind of clean animal and two of every kind of unclean animal. So what's, some people have said this is two different accounts and they got meshed together. No. Unclean animals are for preserving the earth. You only need one pair of each to then repopulate the land. The clean animals 
are, as we're going to see, for them to be able to use, to be able to use as sacrifices, to be able to eat uh, when they get off the ark. They're going to need provisions. And so they're preserving, but they're also being provided for and having provisions during this time. And he goes on to say, verse 4, Seven days from now, I'll send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. This decreation. Now, we talked last week, but I'll mention it again. Whenever you see the word earth in the Noah account, that is the Hebrew word aretz, and it means earth or land, or like kind of the ground, the, the, the place we're standing on, as opposed to the waters or the skies. So the question of Genesis that we want to be careful, and I want to introduce it at the beginning, and you just hold it in your minds as you read the story. Just hold both of these in your minds. How does this text read if earth means globe, the earth? How does this text read if earth means the land, as in where all this is happening? Not literally the entire earth, but as far as humanity has spread, however far that is. Two different readings. Both are possible in the text, and both give different interpretations depending on which one you choose. So just hold that while you're reading the, the flood account. Uh, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. This is emphasizing once again Noah's obedience to God. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds, and all the creatures that move along the ground, male and female. Do you hear these terms from the Genesis 1 account? Male and female, things that move along the ground, birds. These, this, there's not coincidence. These are the terms that were used in the creation account. Came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after the seven days, floodwaters came on the earth. So now it's going to repeat. It's going to do what some critics call a doublet. Others call panel writing. It says it one way. It's going to say the same thing again because it's emphasizing what's happening. And this is a monumental event in world history. In the 600 year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth. And the floodgates of heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. So springs of the great deep, floodgates of heaven, these are images that the ancients used to describe things like floods and storms. And, and we have to be careful in how far we press these. These images are used in the Psalms with a, with a literary or a metaphorical or an exaggerated sense sometimes. I mean, there are no literal floodgates in heaven, right? That's just a way of describing massive rainfall. So we want to just keep that in mind. And to what degree the author is using phenomenological language, which is describing something as it appears to be, rather than technically as it scientifically is, like the English term sunrise. We just want to be careful and, and hold again in both hands, what does this mean if this was a truly global flood, as some people believe and teach, or if this was a massive humanity-wide flood, but not necessarily global, as other people teach. Either way, it's a cataclysmic event, and it's recorded and remembered in the collective memory of all of the peoples in the ancient world in this area. So that tells us something happened that was massive, 
that is preserved in the memories of primordial humanity. The Genesis account is at least intending to tell us what it was, but it's also using the language and the concepts and the images from the other ancient flood accounts. We talked about that in the last session. So on that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind. Hear that phrase from Genesis 1? Livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. These are the uh, terms, again, from Genesis 1. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them, Genesis 2, came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. Then the Lord shut him in. Now, this is interesting. Just a little side note. In the other accounts, the ancient Near East accounts, uh, for instance, in the Babylonian account, Utnapishtim is the, the Noah figure, and Utnapishtim is the one who closes up the door of the ark. In the Genesis account, the Lord is the one that does it. The text is emphasizing not only Noah, the only thing Noah did was build the ark and take the, un, the clean animals with you. Everything else God did. God brought all the animals. Noah didn't have to go on a, a safari and round up all the animals in the area. God brought the ones that he was going to preserve. Noah didn't even have to shut himself in the ark. Noah and his sons, his family got on. The animals were got on, and then God shut him in. So the text is subtly emphasizing, in contrast to the Babylonian legends and the other ancient Near East accounts, God is doing all of this. This is, this is God's doing. He is, he is enabling. He is saving. There is nothing heroic about Noah. There's not, Noah doesn't do anything other than just obeys when God says, build this ark. Noah has a covenant relationship with God. We saw that last week. We, we, when God says, I'm going to use this, this is going to confirm my covenant with you. So Noah and God have relationship, but Noah, he's not some Superman in the text. He's not, like in the Babylonian account, Utnapishtim is this, this wise man who has gained immor immortality, who Gilgamesh goes to find to ask, how did you survive the flood? And he tells him, and it's through a mixture of craftiness by some of the other gods and Utnapishtim's own initiative that he's able to save himself and his wife uh, and some of the animals and, and everything. And even the gods are afraid of the flood in the Babylonian account. But in the Genesis account, it's kind of using these concepts from the ancient world that they were all well familiar with in their own national histories, and it's undermining them at every turn by saying, no, this is not humanity saving itself. This was not someone looking, seeing clouds, and preparing. You can't use the Noah story to teach self-sufficiency. The whole point of this is God is the one doing everything. Noah is obedient. That's the quality that he has. But God is the actor driving everything in this story. And so, verse 17. Now, now it's going to present this as a contest or a fight between the land and the, the waters. And in the ancient world, remember, the, 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 the God of chaos, the God of, of, of evil, of 
uh, destruction of the forces of chaos is the only word to use were symbolized or were epitomized by the sea serpent or water motifs in the ancient world. So the goddess Tiamat, for instance, that's who the Babylonian god Marduk attacked and overcame and split her body in half and created the sky and created the land from the chaos of water. Well, that's a concept to keep in mind because all throughout the Bible, the sea, the waters, the deep, all these terms are synonymous or are, or are related to concepts of the demonic or of decreation or instability or threats to humanity uh, because the sea was seen as terrifying. There's a superhero seminary video. If you go to discipledojo.org, I mean, excuse me, go to YouTube slash discipledojo and go to our superhero seminary playlist, pull up the video. You can also find it on Facebook. Uh, Aquaman explains the biblical imagery of the sea because there's a video, a superhero seminary video. If you've never seen them, they're fun little lighthearted videos with action figures, superheroes explaining different biblical concepts or themes or passages. And there's one where Professor Aquaman tells you all about the imagery of the sea in the Bible and what it, what it connotes. And it began in Genesis 1 with the Spirit of God hovering over the deep and out of the primordial darkness and chaos of this watery mass, God then creates and brings into being the, the, the world that we know. Now that's being undone and everything is being taken back to its primordial, primordial chaotic, watery, uh, tohu vavohu state, to use the Hebrew word. And that's what we see. So this, this section is like a contest between the land and the water, the earth and the sea. And it's going to use language that's very much language of a fight. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth or the land. The waters rose and increased greatly in the land or on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They prevailed greatly on the earth. NIV says they rose greatly, but the word is actually prevailed. To, to overcome in a struggle. The, the sea, the forces of chaos, the forces of, of uh, evil, of decreation, they're winning. They're winning over this earth that God had crafted during the creation week seven chapters ago. This is important. This is, this is a monumentous thing. All of the Genesis 1 and 2 creation effort seems as if it's wasted. It seems as if God's like, I made a mistake. This is all, we're going to abandon this project. And if that's the case, then what of the promise God made to the woman that her offspring would one day crush the head of the serpent? That's the tension that the text leaves us with in the middle of this flood account. The waters prevailed greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens or under the sky were covered. And that word covered can mean submerged or it can mean covered as in like a, a blanket being covered over something and draping over it. Uh, or, you know, just, you know, when we say this is covered with paint, you know, this is covered with graffiti. This is covered. So in other words, what I'm saying is the word is not submerged necessarily. It's just the word for covered that has metaphorical meanings, it has literal meanings. 
but there's question among interpreters, depending on what view they hold to, whether this means all the mountains were submerged under standing water up to 20 feet, or whether 20 feet's worth of water immediately covered all the land so that the ark floated above the area that this is all taking place. Was Mount Everest covered? That's the question that people ask because this says all the high hills or the high mountains in this area were covered, but the mountains in, in this area, very different than the Himalayas. So regardless, that's where there's some, you can interpret it different ways. Don't feel like you're stuck with one or the other. The waters rose covered or kafar covered the mountains upwards of 20 feet. So 20 feet above the top of the mountains or 20 feet up, 20 feet of water up the mountains. Uh, either is possible. Verse 22, or excuse me, verse 21, every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils, that is allusion back to God breathing into Adam's nostrils. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, men and animals, and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. So now, this seems to be the dark time, the darkest of the dark. Everything's undone. Everything's been taken back to its Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 uh, state of being formless and empty uh, and darkness covering everything. Um, is bad. But in the text, there's this brief glimmer of hope. Only Noah and those with him on the ark were left. And then there's this ominous sentence, the waters flooded the earth for 150 days, so half a year basically, or almost. Now we come to the very center of the Noah story. Chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 is the center of the chiasm, the middle of the X. Okay, so everything comes down, and then this is the center, and then everything's going to unfold in the same order that it came down in in the previous section. Chapter 8, verse 1, But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. This is now God is going to recreate. What's been uncreated is now going to be recreated. And it starts just like it does in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. And the Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, the wind of God, the word for wind and spirit is the same word in Hebrew, was over the deep, over the surface of the waters. The Spirit of God was hovering. And so where the spirit of the God, where the spirit of God is, where the wind of God is, there's life, there's creation. Ezekiel will see this in his vision of the dry bones and the breath, the wind that blows through with the spirit that animates these bones. And then that's a picture of Israel being restored, brought back from the dead. This is, this is the glimmer of hope. This is the turning of the corner in the flood story. So God sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. The land couldn't stop the waters, but God's wind, God's spirit could stop the waters. 
And that's a key theological point. You know, later, God in the flesh will speak, and the wind and the waves will obey him. And his disciples, they'll freak out because they'll realize, whoa, nobody can command the wind and the waves except God and God alone. And they're starting to grasp the significance of what who Jesus is. Verse 2, now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. So this is now going back in the order of how things were described. Floodgates of heaven, springs of the deep burst open. Now they've been closed. So everything is going to undo itself in the order that it was described in originally. The water receded steadily from the earth. And at the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains became visible. Uh, people have looked all over for Mount Ararat. There's no, I mean, there is a Mount Ararat, but the text doesn't say the ark is on Mount Ararat. So if you go there in Turkey or Armenia, wherever today, just you're in a tourist trap because there's no actual text saying Mount Ararat. What it says was it came to rest in the mountainous region, in the foothills, in the hill country of Ararat. Um, that's, that'd be today somewhere in the vicinity of where Armenia and Iran and Turkey meet in that part of the world. And that's as specific as the text gets. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven. It kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find no place to rest its feet, no resting place, which is a play on Noah's name, because there was water over the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again sent out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. We all, or a lot of us, are familiar with this story. Uh, this actually happens in the Gogamesh account as well. Utnapishtim sends out a raven and then a dove, and, and the first two come back, and then one doesn't come back. Here's something interesting, I think, to keep in mind. Um, when you think about the flood, and the, the extent of the flood. Some people say, take the words literally, God says it flooded the earth, high mountains under the heavens, that means the Himalayas, the flood formed the Grand Canyon, the flood, I mean, people just, if there's any geological thing in the world that's that's amazing and scientists says took billions of years to form, flood scientists typically say, or creation scientists say, well, no, the flood did it. So the flood is what did the, the Grand Canyon, and the flood is what moved the earth around and built up and tore down and all this stuff. Um, so they would have you envision, uh, you know, five, six miles worth of water covering the entire globe. If all the mountains were covered, Mount Everest is, you know, 30 something thousand feet tall. That means that the waters were above Mount Everest, 20 feet higher than all over the rest of the world. The waters would have to be that high too. The flood in Noah account, it lasts for, you know, half a year. And then it, when it recedes, there is, 
within flying distance of where the doves land, there, in only a few weeks, there's the chance for a tree to be there and for the bird to be able to get a leaf off the tree. To me, this has always seemed to argue against the concept of, of a, you know, five miles worth of water everywhere is because uh, no tree would survive anything like that for any amount of time at that depth. Uh, but trees could survive, at least intact structurally, could survive a really, really deep flood that was regional, but that was not miles and miles deep. And so there might be, you know, the, after the water recedes, there could easily still be some trees left with some leaves on them and start growing again, photosynthesis and all that kind of stuff happening. Um, so the fact that trees grew so soon after the floodwaters went down, to me is one point in favor of the local rather than the universal global flood concept. Not a slam dunk, it's not a proof text, it's not anything you can say, haha, see? But to me, it just makes it more plausible that this is talking about a universal flood from the perspective of the author, which means the, the ancient Near East Mediterranean basin, the, the area where the flood is recorded. Not that mountains in Tibet were flooded with water and the Andes in South America and all that stuff. So do with that what you will. It's just something that's always stuck out to me is how soon after the flood there was leaves available on a tree has always, to me, seemed to argue against the type of cataclysmic flood that is presented by young earth creationists sometimes um, without, otherwise you have to introduce a miracle that the God miraculously made the tree. You know, God, God, the spirit of God called back the water. So he grew the trees fast. Okay, maybe, but the text doesn't say that. The text doesn't even imply that there, there's, there's, there's no, I mean, you would, you have, you have to introduce that miracle into the text. So could God have done it? Sure. Um, did he do it? Well, the text doesn't say. So again, it's possible to read Genesis as a truly global flood where seven miles worth of water covered the entire earth. It's possible, um, but it's just as possible. And I think it's contextually fits better to posit a flood that was universal in the scope of as far as humanity had spread on the, in the land. And because the purpose of the flood was to wipe out humanity and the ruin that they had brought about in the land, on the earth, in the Aretz. So as far as humanity had spread, that's as far as the flood needs to go for it to be a universal flood, getting the job done that God said he was going to do. And the rest, I think, is easily chalked up to describe it as phenomenological language. And we know that Genesis does this because in the same book, in Genesis, later, when Joseph comes to power in Egypt, and he's, there's a famine, it's going to say all the peoples of the earth came to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe in all the earth. So my point is, if you press all the earth in Genesis 8, 7 and 8, why do you not press all the earth in Genesis 40 something, I can't remember the exact chapter, when all the earth all the land came to buy grain from Joseph. 
In other words, if you're gonna if you're gonna posit a truly global flood in Genesis seven and eight, which you can do, why do you not also demand on the same grounds because the language is almost the same that Eskimos and Aboriginals from Australia and people in the Andes Mountains in South America all paddled in their canoes across the ocean to Joseph to come buy grain. You, you got to, that's the point. If you're going to press for literalism, to me, I think you, you got to be consistent. Or you can say, no, kol ha'ar, it's all the earth, is a stock language way of saying all this place that we're in, that we're talking about not literally all of the entire earth. So do with it what you will. There will be people, I, I can't read the comments while you guys are typing them because this is live, but I know there will be people who are going to jump on and and try to argue the global, truly global flood uh, because it's so ingrained in the last 60 years of evangelical education, which is fine. If you believe that, I'm not saying don't believe it. What I am saying is don't condemn other people who don't believe it when their lack of belief in it is based on what they're reading in Scripture. There's a difference. And you open the Genesis commentaries, you will see people with different views on the Genesis flood. It is not true. Ken, Ken Ham is lying to you if he tells you that you have to believe in a global, universal, worldwide flood in order to get the gospel right. That is a lie. Whether it's an intentional lie or whether it's done in ignorance, it's a lie. You don't have to, none, no doctrine of the Christian faith is tied to a specific understanding of the events of Genesis 1 through 11. Not one. There is room for ambiguity, there is room for literary artistry, which means that there's going to be figures of speech. There's going to be phenomenological language. There's going to be things that we would call narrative exaggeration or creative license or all of these things that aren't faults. They're intended by the author for their artistry to communicate a very true point. Now, what that point is, Christians are going to disagree. Christian, I, this whole shelf back here, actually, it's this shelf right here. All of those books, those of you on the podcast can't see, all of these are books on creation and Genesis and science and the different interpretations. And guess what? There's at least three, four, five different views represented in those. All by faithful, Bible-believing, evangelical Christians. So that's my point. Don't get suckered in into thinking that whatever view you're taught, even the view that I'm espousing, I, cards on the table, I don't think the flood of Genesis was a truly global flood. I don't think the text really says that it was. If you give the same weight to phenomenological language in this that you do in the Joseph Grain account, um, I think it's saying that there was a flood that was humanity-wide and that wiped out all of the people in the land who had ruined the land in the lines of Cain and the uh, lines of Seth. And, and so all of the people who have been the focus of the text until now were wiped out except Noah and his family. Does that mean that giraffes were coming from Africa to get on the ark? Does that mean that polar bears were paddling down from the North Pole to hop on the ark and penguins swam up from Antarctica to hop in the ark? I don't think so. I don't think that that's what the text ever intends to teach a modern reader. 
I think from the perspective of the ancient Near East, were all the animals in the land that Israel had normal everyday encounters with, were they all on the ark? Yeah. I think two of, of all of the animals in the land were on the ark. How far does it go? I don't know. Were there Bengal tigers? Were there those Japanese snow monkeys that sit in hot tubs, uh, in hot springs? Were, you know, were there elephants from India? I don't know. I don't think so. That's my view based on the reading of the text and how scripture uses universal language and the fact that in the Bible, all doesn't always mean all and that it has nothing to do with the point of the flood. I don't think, I think that it's more plausible that this was a massive but not global flood event. That's now that's, that's JM's opinion as a Bible teacher, as somebody who's translated this text and has studied this passage and has taught on this passage for about 15, almost 20 years. That's just where I land right now. You don't, you don't have to send me links to something from answers in Genesis or, um, you know, Ligonier ministries or Vodibachum or any other, you know, John MacArthur, you, you don't have to send me those. I've read them. Uh, and I'm just telling you, I'm not convinced. And I don't, I don't, I'm not convinced by the science for sure, but I'm not a scientist. So that's not the big real, the big reason. The big reason is I'm not convinced from the text that that's necessary, but that's me. This is the early chapters of Genesis. There's fluidity. There is ambiguity. There is room for differing interpretations. And so if somebody comes to me and says, I mean, there are Christians who I respect immensely, whose work I think is top notch, who I regularly go to for their commentaries and their writings and their teachings, who disagree. And they do believe that it was an actual global flood. They all have different ways in terms of what that actually would have looked like and the mechanics of it and everything. But the point is, it doesn't detract from somebody's ability to be a good interpreter of the text or a good biblical theologian. It's just like we saw with Genesis 6, the sons of God, the daughters of men, uh, and the Nephilim. There are different interpretations that are all valid from the point of view of the text. So where you end up will just be up to how you read the text and what you give more weight to and, and your own theological journey. And I encourage it. I encourage people to think through these things, rigorously test whatever view you have in of Genesis and science. I mean, that's the scientific method, right? Rigorous testing. So every view you have, put it to, to the highest degree of scrutiny and, 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 and answer all of the hard questions. And if you can't, then that's evidence that you should probably hold that view a little more loosely than you might otherwise. So that's where I land with the Genesis flood. Personally, I loosely hold that it was a, a, from the perspective of the author of Genesis, a universal global cataclysmic event that wiped out all the people and all the animals in the land that, that they were familiar with. I don't think that entails that Mount Everest was covered with water. I don't think it needs to. I don't think that means that this is how the Grand Canyon was made. I don't think any, I think all of those things have nothing to do with the text. And, and at the end of the day, the text is about God decreating and then recreating the people in this line, in this family that's going to give rise eventually to this guy, Abraham. So there's so much more that we could say on it, but half of you, if you're even still watching, are probably bored to death and wanting to get on with it. And I am too. So 
we ended with verse 13. By the first day of the first of uh, by the first <laughs> by the first day of the first month of Noah's six hundred and first year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the twenty seventh day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Here's another example: the earth was completely dry. So once again, this is an example of how if you press for literalism, this would say that, that there were no swamps, that there were no lakes, that there were no wetlands in all the earth because it's completely dry. The text says the earth was completely dry. You see the point? When you, when you press for literalism, you end up with a lot of kind of absurdities. And that the text is clearly not teaching. What this is saying, what? The land dried up. The land. The place where it's not water, but the land, Aretz. That's was dry. Water didn't cover it anymore. This isn't making a statement about the geology of the earth. But yet, if you press it for the same degree of literalism that some people say you have to press all the other language of Genesis for, then you end up with stuff that just starts to make no sense at all. So, Allow that in the Bible, all doesn't always mean all, that there is phenomenological language, that there is descriptive metaphorical language, elevated, what we would call artistic exaggeration from the point of view of the author, all of that, none of that undermines the text. That's the point. Verse 15, chapter 8, then God said to Noah, come out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring out every kind of living creature that's with you, the birds, the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. Recreation, be fruitful, multiply. This was what they were told back in the early Genesis 1 and account. So Noah came out together with his sons and wives and his... <laughs> together with his son and his wife and his son's wives, all the animals, all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. Now we see what the clean animals were for. They were for Noah and his family's provisions. They were for the burnt offerings. Verse 21, the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood, and never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. So now this Levitical sacrifice, sacrifice hadn't been instituted uh, as a religious thing yet. But this, the way that this is described, it's using the term that the Levitical system will spell out later. So this is an anachronistic, this is kind of like um, Moses or whoever compile, is compiling Genesis, using categories of later thought to describe events that happened long before those were ever instituted. There's, there's this, this sacrifice that appeases the wrath of Yahweh in the face of sin. That's what the sacrificial system is going to do for Israel in Leviticus 17 when God institutes it is the sacrificial system will be there to, to literally hold at bay the wrath of God or the punishment of God against wanton, blatant sinfulness in the world. 
and the sacrificial system will be the thing that 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 allows God that God sets up that allows sin to be atoned for, overlooked in the present. And ultimately the New Testament will reveal that that Jesus will be the fulfillment of all sacrifices and will be the final sacrifice, the most perfect sacrifice. But this is a hint back in primordial events of uh, foreshadowing of the sacrificial system that's going to come later and what its function will be. If you want to know about sacrifices, hop on the podcast and click on the Leviticus series. We spent a year going through Leviticus chapter by chapter, and you can find out all you ever want to know about the sacrifices. So the Lord said, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is uh, evil from childhood. Never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Verse 22, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. So creation ends with God resting, his Sabbath rest in creation. This recreation ends with God resting from combat or resting from judgment or and the reason i say resting from combat is because in chapter nine which we we don't have time to get into we'll look at this next week god's going to end this whole thing by symbolically putting his weapon down um he what i mean by that you'll have to tune in next time where we unpack that a little bit but he is going to lay down his arms so to speak against humanity and so the the obedience of one man and the sacrifice of one man held at bay the judgment of God against sin. That's what you're seeing. That's what's happening in the text. Whether, whether, whatever you think about that, whether you agree, disagree, it makes sense, it doesn't make sense, just from literary perspective, that's what's happening. And this is foreshadowing, and this is setting the groundwork for not just the sacrificial system in Israel, but for the ultimate sacrificial uh, offering which in the New Testament will be revealed as Jesus. So all of this gets like snowballed into bigger things, these, these things that are happening in Genesis 1 through 11. We're almost done. We've got chapter 9 is going to finish up the account of Noah. And then in chapter 10 and 11, we're going to get two, big, two more big picture events. And then that will, that will run us right up into... Abraham coming on the scene. And that's when the Bible story begins. So